0: Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we come together to study your precious word? We confess it is a gift of immeasurable portions to us, and we bless your name for it, and we ask that your spirit would be present among us as we study it to open our eyes to see wonderful things in it. And Lord, we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles with me back to the Gospel of Mark, where we're continuing our brief study of the coming of the kingdom. Now, I've titled this series, Thy Kingdom Come, because that's really the theme of Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 34 the coming of the kingdom of God. And last week we saw that the kingdom of God is coming and growing by a sovereign process. It's not hinging on our creativity, our political savvy, because it's an unyielding, unstoppable, invincible kingdom that will not be hindered, will not be stopped by anyone. Anyone's successes, anyone's failures. The kingdom of God is invincible. And it will come exactly as our Lord has promised. And the knowledge of that truth, that theological reality, should fill us with courage and confidence uh, to be, in this world, the salt and the light that God has called us to be. It is becoming uh, more and more urgent that God's people would stand and shine and be the preserving agent in society like the Lord calls us to. It's always been urgent, so to even say it's becoming more and more urgent is a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, But in our culture, in our society, the hour has come uh, for God's people to hold fast to the realities that His kingdom is sovereignly uh, being enacted, and for us to be full of courage, as we look at a, a world that is hostile to God and the things of God. So when we think about the sovereign entry, the sovereign coming of the kingdom of God, it should give us backbones. It should give us courage to stand and be the kind of people who's, who uh, stand up in the face of opposition and do, to do so fearlessly like all of those who've gone before us. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the face of the fiery furnace. Like Daniel when threatened with the lion's den. Like Stephen in the face of hostile crowds. Each of these men, and those who are our forebears, they understood who was in charge. And that theological knowledge put concrete in their spines so they could face remarkable odds and stand up against everything the world leveraged against God and His kingdom. And it should do the same for us. To know that the kingdom of God is coming sovereignly by a sovereign process reminds us that we might lose a battle here or there. That's true. But we will not, in the ultimate sense, lose the war. Victory is promised to us his kingdom is forever but it's not enough for us just to know that the kingdom of god will come about by god's sovereign power the lord also wants us to know that his kingdom will come in a very unexpected way it will come contrary to your expectations contrary to human expectations contrary to popular expectation at large, the kingdom will come surprisingly. It will come surprisingly and unexpectedly. And that's what we want to look at this morning in verses 30 to 34. So will you stand with me and we'll read Mark 4, verse 30, beginning in verse 30. And he said, as Jesus said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Verse 33, With many such parables, He was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And He did not speak to them without a parable, but He was explaining everything privately to His disciples. You may be seated. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verse 11, we're told that the expectation of Jesus' followers was that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately with the Messiah. It was going to come in a snap. Luke seventeen twenty, we see that the Pharisees had the same expectation. They believed that when the Messiah appeared, that He would come with all the usual pomp and splendor that accompanies earthly kingdoms. They thought that He would immediately triumph over Rome, and that His victory over the world would be swift, and decisive and bring about world peace. And they based that really on the Old Testament. And they were actually, given what they knew, they were not that far off. When you look at the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, you see God promises to send a divine king who would come and institute a universal reign over the globe. We see this in passages like Isaiah 2. You can turn back there if you want to. Isaiah chapter 2. We'll look at a couple chapters in Isaiah here. Isaiah chapter 2, the prophet writes, Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Now, I want to just underscore this. Verse 3, And many peoples, that's nations, will come and they'll say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob, that He, who's the He there, it's the Messiah, that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and He will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Why is that? Well, because they will be subdued by the promised Messiah. Verse 11 says, "...the proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and everyone else will be underneath His feet." Flip over to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And that is where we've been in the Gospel of Mark. We have been in Galilee. That is where we have been and we will be there for a little while longer. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. It's happening all over Galilee in Mark 4. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Verse 4: For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders. The rod of their oppressors as at the battle of Midian. When the Messiah comes, He will break the yoke of slavery, of bondage, of oppression. This is what He'll do. Now think, fast forward to the first century. Who, whose yoke are the people of God under in the first century? Romans. They're under the yoke of Rome. So, the Messiah has come. What's the Messiah going to do? Isaiah 9 says He's going to break their yoke. So let's get him to do it. Let's 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 get it going. Jesus, come on. Back to Isaiah nine, verse five: For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and cloak rolled in blood, will be for burning, and fuel for the fire. Now, why do you why do you burn uh, battle military boots, military attire? Because you don't need it anymore. Why do you not need it anymore? Well, because the Messiah has come. And opposition is laid to rest. You see the point. And how will all this be brought about? Well, verse 6 of chapter 9. 4. A child will be born to us. We're all looking for this child. He will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on His shoulders. And His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. This is the expectation of the people of Israel in the first century. And I could go to Isaiah 11, we could go to Isaiah 25, Psalm 72, Zechariah 14, and so on and so on to sort of show that the people of Israel and even the disciples were right to have the expectation that when the Messiah appears, so will His kingdom. Because all of the Old Testament is driving towards this Messianic kingdom that ushers in everlasting peace and righteousness where the Messiah is on the throne of David and the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everybody's, everything's driving at that. Yet, what we have seen in Mark 4 is that Jesus is bringing to His disciples a new insight to how the kingdom of God is going to come. This is new revelation. We saw it in Mark 4, verse 11, where Jesus says, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Remember, a mystery is something that was formerly hidden, but is now being revealed. And what's being revealed here is is that the kingdom of God is not going to come at once in all of its glory and all of its splendor like everyone was expecting. It's going to come in phases. First Advent, Second Advent, right? We all believe that. And the emphasis really in Mark 4 is that the first phase is going to be that the kingdom of God comes in the heart of men. That's why Mark 4 has such an emphasis on the heart. And Jesus says this explicitly in Luke 17 and verse 20. Listen to this. Luke 17, verse 20. Speaking to the Pharisees. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, I just want to point out that this was the main conversation point. When will it come? When's it coming? How's it coming? How should we expect it? What signs should we be looking at uh, to see when it comes? He answered them and said, the Kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is. Or, there it is. For behold, the Kingdom of God is in your midst. Quite literally, The kingdom of God is within you. That's the idea. It's not coming with all the signs to be observed. The standard indicators of a new regime. uh, Indicating that it's finally present. That's not the way it's going to come. It's going to come silently, quietly, in the hearts of men. So the first phase then of the kingdom's coming... The first Advent will inaugurate the spiritual dimensions of the New Covenant. Right? Jeremiah 33, these promises of the New Covenant will be inaugurated and enacted during the first phase, the first Advent. The Messiah will come, fulfill the sufferings told, foretold in Isaiah 53, and His people will be given the Holy Spirit and will be given new hearts with new motives and new desires to obey the Lord. Remember we saw in the parable of the sower, this is sovereign work of God to prepare the heart. And all of this really is a foretaste of Ezekiel 36. Listen to this, Ezekiel 36, 26. The promises of the new covenant. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes, and you will be careful to observe My ordinances. This is the promise of the New Covenant. And we enjoy that reality as New Covenant believers today. However, the physical dimensions of God's kingdom, which were promised and which were anticipated uh, in the first century, those will not be fulfilled until the second advent. It's at the second coming of Christ, Hell of the day, right? When the Lord returns. It's at the second coming of Christ, when Jesus returns, that the physical kingdom of God will be officially established and consummated on the earth. And the Messiah will reign, Psalm 72, from sea to sea. And the nations will flock to Him and worship. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. And there will be no end to the increase of His government and of peace from that point on and forevermore. That's Isaiah 9-7. So, my point here is that the disciples were not actually wrong to think that the kingdom would come immediately with all of its fullness. They were just ignorant of the two-phase dynamic that was now being introduced and revealed to God's people. They were unaware of that because God had not revealed it to His people in the past this is new revelation that's what jesus means in mark 4:11 and so all of these people then they don't know that this is the way it's going to unfold and they are all looking for the sudden coming of the kingdom in all its glory and because of that they needed a radical reset of their expectations they needed to realize that the kingdom of god was not going to come like they thought it wasn't going to have all the standard evidences of an earthly empire. It was going to come first in the hearts of men. So the question then is, how do you take a people who have you know, two-thirds of the Bible at this point, the Old Testament, and they're, they've built their theology on the Old Testament, rightly so, but now the, the Messiah has come and He's giving them new information about how the kingdom's going to come, how do you take a people with that kind of expectation and recalibrate it to help them understand what they ought to expect in the coming of the kingdom? And that is what Jesus is trying to do and does in verse 30 when he says, or asks rather, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or well, the disciples would have answered, oh, I can picture for you worldwide dominion, Isaiah 9 complete conquering, the nation subdued, everyone bowing to the feet of the Messiah, and we want to be right beside you. Remember Jesus. That's where we want to be. I can give you a picture, Jesus. Let me help you out. Jesus said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? and what parable shall we present it? In other words, how can I make this clear to you guys about this new development of the kingdom's coming? How can I show you what the kingdom of God is like in picture? And so that's what he gives them in verse 31. He says, The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And immediately, knowing their expectations, you can almost see them scratching their head and saying, No, 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 no it's not. It's not like a mustard seed, Jesus. I mean, Peter, remember, takes Jesus aside, rebukes him. You can almost see Peter saying, look, Jesus, come here. Let me help you out here. you got all these people. you got to get them motivated, excited. You can't say it's like a mustard seed. <laughs> uh, they, they're, they're scratching their head, most likely, because they know very well what a mustard seed is. And for them, the kingdom of God is nothing like a mustard seed. It's like a massive mountain. That everyone trembles and bows before. But Jesus is going to set them straight here. So he says, The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. That's pretty laughable. It's like a mustard seed, it's inglorious, very common seed that produced a very common plant throughout Israel. It grew in the wild. And it had these really pretty, beautiful, bright flowers that would dominate the Galilean landscape in the spring. And it was so common on the landscape, uh, but it was very useful because they would use it for medicinal purposes and even to make oil. And so because of that, just for convenience sake, people would take it and they would plant it in their private gardens as well. Nothing extraordinary about it at all. It's almost like a weed. It's actually invasive. Uh, it's like, you know, an invasive plant. And so some of the historians, if you want to read about historical uh, botany, if you're interested in that sort of thing, um, you know, talk about how if you did that, if you committed this almost error of planting a must- black mustard seed in your garden, that it was impossible to get it out because it was so invasive and it reproduced so quickly and it overcrowded all the other plants. So it's very common. What was remarkable, though, about the mustard plant was, of course, its size, but also its growth. Now let's think about the size of this plant, this seed. It was the smallest known seed in Israel. I don't think your yellow mustard seed. I was actually this week. I was studying about mustard seeds and read about botany this week. Um, anyway, I opened my pantry, and there's a thing of mustard you I like, huh, what in the world do we do with that? Um you know, it's a big seed, and I thought, this is not right. So it's not yellow mustard. Right, this is black mustard. It's a special variety of mustard that grows in um, the Middle East, but actually it's also been transplanted here as well. Um, but it doesn't grow as large here as it does there. But at any rate, this seed was very small. It was about the size of a grain of sand. Yet, it could grow into a large tree-like shrub that could sometimes be over 10 or 15 foot tall. Tiny seed, massive growth. And actually the seed was so tiny that it became common in Judaism to refer to something that was very small, extraordinarily small, as a mustard seed in sort of a proverbial way. The rabbis used this uh, mustard seed metaphor to refer to the smallest imaginable portion of food or liquid that could pollute or make something ceremonially unclean. Jesus used it to refer to the smallest amount of faith imaginable. And here, Jesus uses the mustard seed to refer to the small, meager, unimpressive beginnings of the kingdom of God. Now, before I dive into that, I need to say something here. Because there are some who have really struggled and stumbled over verse 31, where Jesus says this, that the, the mustard seed is smaller than any of the seeds that are up on the earth. There are some who have seriously stumbled over that line because somewhere along the way, someone has pointed out to them that there is actually a seed that's smaller than the black mustard seed. It's the seed of a certain variety of wild orchid I told you I've been reading about botany this week. <laughs> it's a seed of a, a variety of wild orchid that grows in tropical rainforests. It's a type of epithetic orchid. For those of you who don't know what that means, let me enlighten you. I was just enlightened this week. It means that it grows on trees. It's a type of orchid that grows on trees. And this type of orchid has a seed that is one three hundredths of an inch big. That's the size of a speck of dust. And so you can only see this thing with a microscope. And so for some people, they hear about this tropical, epithetic orchid seed somehow, and then they hear Jesus say that the black mustard seed is the smallest on the earth, and that causes them to question the integrity of our Lord and the integrity of the Bible. And I, I mean, I understand the dilemma here, uh, but most of the time, when you are faced with some sort of doubt like this some questioning of scripture there is usually a very reasonable explanation for it and usually it comes with an understanding of the context and just the way language works period and that's the case here so i want you to just think with this think about this with me for a second what is jesus doing here when he says the mustard seed is the smallest on the earth what's he doing well, he is giving his first century Jewish audience a picture by which they can understand the coming and growth of the kingdom of God. And he's explicitly using proverbial language, metaphorical language. Remember, a proverb is a story you just sort of throw alongside a teaching point. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And he explicitly uses proverbial language. Verse 30 says, What parable shall we use to present the kingdom of God? Now that's important because it reminds us that Jesus is not giving a botany lesson here. He's giving a picture of the kingdom of God to a very specific audience. So, He uses familiar language and images that would help them get His point. And to them, to His audience, the smallest seed that they have conceived of, or anyone in their realm has conceived of is the black mustard seed, which was proverbial in their culture. So that's the image he uses because it was the smallest seed to them. Now, I just want you to imagine with me if Jesus would have used 21st century scientific standards to give this parable. So he asked the question, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? Imagine if he said this. It is like the epiphytic orchid of South America that grows on the branches of trees in the tropical rainforest whose seeds can only be seen by modern microscopes. <laughs> you get the point. So Jesus, of course, is speaking in a common proverbial way because Jesus had no desire to be... To be I'll put it this way. Jesus wanted to be understood. That was the point. And so He spoke in a way condescending to His audience. He spoke in a way that was understandable to them so that they would understand the nature of the kingdom. And He made a profound point. And that point is this. And I want to just express it as clearly as I can for you. Here is the point Jesus is making. Just as the mustard seed has the smallest, most humble beginnings, so too will the kingdom of God. But, just as the growth of the mustard seed is unexpected and surprising, so too will be the growth of the kingdom of God. That's the point. And I want to just think about that with you for a few minutes here. First, like the mustard plant, the kingdom of God, contrary to expectations, will have very small beginnings. And we know that, right? We contemplate the small beginnings of the kingdom every Christmas. The kingdom of God starts with a Messiah who was born not in a palace, but in a stable, laid in a manger, and brought up in an insignificant country town called Nazareth. His initial followers were ordinary people of society. They weren't the highly educated or the upper class They were fearful and slow to believe Him. They were stiff-necked often and tried to correct Him frequently. And whenever He was arrested, they demonstrated their fearfulness and slowness to believe by Mark 14, 50, leaving Him and fleeing when things got tough. And even after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, he, He only had about 100 or so followers in Jerusalem. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, maybe about 500 in Galilee. So you're talking about 600 people. But by any standard, compare this to the vast Roman Empire that the Messiah is supposed to overcome. The might and the magnitude of the Roman Empire made the kingdom of God look like a mustard seed. (laughs) It was... Small, insignificant, and almost hopeless. However, this meager beginning would soon gain momentum. After the resurrection, the faith of the disciples was confirmed. It's amazing to see that change, isn't it? Weak, they're kind of fledgling disciples, not kind of, they're very much fledgling disciples. And then post-resurrection, and then post the day of Pentecost, these men and women, They are transformed. And the men stand up and boldly preach the gospel of the kingdom that had just caused their Lord to be crucified. And for that reason, they fled and they hid before. But after the resurrection and after the Spirit's indwelling, they are transformed entirely. And all of their doubts are gone and they're trusting in God and they're standing and proclaiming the truth come what may. And they stood and they preached. And the Lord, according to Acts 2, added 3,000 souls to the church that day. So 3,600 people. But as you know, that was just the beginning of a chain reaction that reverberated throughout history whereby hundreds of millions of men and women and children have been added to the kingdom and it continues to grow this day. Small, meager beginnings, but extraordinary growth. And that's what these disciples needed to understand. They had to get it. They needed to get it. It's going to start small. And I know you're going to be discouraged by it. Because we tend to despise the day of small things. And so Jesus is trying to recalibrate their expectations because they wanted, like us, instant majesty, instant glory, instant transformation. And that is endemic to human nature. We don't think of it in terms of majesty, glory. Just think about the way you think about your sanctification. What do you want God to do? We we all want, and we pray this, we all want God to zap us instantly. If there was a way to make that happen, I would be the first in line. And actually, for a long time in my life, that was my prayer. I would pray, God, make it change, and then I would do nothing. I was just waiting. God... Zap me and change me. Zap me and transform me. Make it instant. Make it sudden. Give me instant growth, instant maturity, instant wisdom, instant godliness. Until I realized that that is not how God works. We think because God can do it instantly that He will or He should because that's exactly what we would do. We would do it instantly if we had the power to do it. But that is not the way God works. God works gradually and slowly and steadily to bring about his good purposes in our lives and to transform us into the kingdom citizens that he would have us to be and we have a part to play in that so yeah pray god transform me but also you need to do your part that's just a side thing there all right back to the sermon we we despise the day of small things typically and the things that, for us, look so small and meager, our own faith, our own maturity, our own godliness, we often look at that and we're discouraged, and we're downcast. And I think that is the, the, the way it is because we miss the fact that God is sovereignly bringing about His purposes. If we understood that God delights to work through the small, meager beginnings, uh, like the mustard plant, to bring about extraordinary growth then we would be every day anticipating, What is God going to do today? I have a really meager, puny little faith here. But I believe that God is going to transform me. Right? And He's going to cause me to grow and change as I exercise my faith. If we understood God's sovereign orchestration and command of our own sanctification, we would wake up with anticipation. We would look to Him with confidence that today might be the day that I respond to my boss in a godly way. I'm gonna do all my, I can, I'm gonna do my part. Today might be the day that I work up courage to share the gospel with my neighbor. I'm gonna do my part, I'm gonna be ready to go in it, and I'm gonna trust that God will give me the boldness, the courage to do it. So we need to remember that the things that are discouraging to us often become our points of greatest glory and delight. Our sanctification grows slowly but we don't need to despise the day of small things or be discouraged we should be patient and obey the lord and trust that he will bring about his good purposes in our hearts and in our lives and really the kingdom of god is exactly the same way the kingdom of god comes gradually slowly but steadily it conquers the hearts of men And it's continuing to grow and grow and grow. And God is incrementally making His people into the kind of people He wants them to be. So let's look at one more point here. The kingdom of God is coming sovereignly. It's coming gradually. But there's another point here that I want us to see, and it's one that I think we would miss Easily, we probably just skip over it in our normal Bible reading. But it's not a point that Jesus' first century audience would have missed. It's in verse 32. Now look there with me. Jesus said, Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. That last line that I want to think about with you. So the birds of the air can nest under its shade. In the ancient world, empires and kingdoms were often depicted as great trees under which the people of the world could find shelter. The imagery of a tree depicted a kingdom that was so mighty and so pervasive that it brought stability and shelter to all the nations around it. We see this in Daniel 4. If you... Recall your Old Testament history. Daniel 4. The great Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, you'll remember, has a dream. And in that dream, his kingdom is described as a great tree. Daniel 4, verse 11. It was like a tree that grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky. And it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. You see the comprehensiveness here? The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all the living creatures fed themselves from it. We see the same image in Ezekiel 17, verses 22 to 24, and this is a messianic prophecy. A prophecy about what the coming Messiah's kingdom will be like. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord God, I will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. Just notice the sovereignty language. I will, I will, I will. Verse 23, On the high mountain of Israel, I will plant it, that it may bring forth branches and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And notice this, And the birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will perform it. Talk about sovereignty over the nations. Talk about carrying the king in your pocket. I mean, the Lord God does with the presidents, the kings of the world, whatever he desires. And that's what we looked at last week, this sovereign process by which the Lord God is bringing about his kingdom. But I want to look at here is this language of the trees and the branches expanding out, and then the birds of the air coming and finding shelter under the branches. It's a way of describing a powerful, influential, comprehensive kingdom. So, when Jesus says that the kingdom is like a mustard seed that's extremely small at first but will grow enough so that all the people of the world will be able to find shelter under its dimension, what He's really doing here is He's making a point about the expansiveness of the kingdom of God. That's that's the point here. The birds of the air will come underneath its branches. He's saying this kingdom will expand to include the entire world. The kingdom that will be made up of Jew and Gentile alike. Now talk about head scratching for the disciples. But nonetheless, it's reality. If you think about Matthew 10. Matthew 10, it's really an interesting development in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 10, the Lord commissions the apostles to go out and preach. But he gives this really narrow caveat. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, go only to the Jews. Now think about the Great Commission that comes eighteen chapters later, Matthew twenty-eight. What does the Lord say there? Go to all nations. All right, so it's one thing to have a kingdom with a mighty that you know depicted as a mighty tree with great branches. And the disciples would have liked that. But Jesus is sort of pushing them out here and saying, look, this kingdom will be mighty and it's going to have great branches, but all the birds of the air will come underneath it as well. So that's a Matthew 10 to a Matthew 28 transition. The kingdom of God is going to expand to all the earth, all nations. Which is why Jesus says His disciples are to go to all nations, evangelizing and baptizing them and teaching them to observe All that he has commanded. So there is an expansiveness here that underscores the reality that God's kingdom will go beyond the borders of Israel and will provide blessing and security for the entire world. Now, that seems like a a pretty basic issue for us. Why? Well, because we swim in this water, (laughs) this is where we live. We are Gentiles. We are people for the most part. We are those uh, who have been reached because we are like birds that have flown into this massive tree. This is where we live. We live in an era where the birds of the air are flying into the kingdom of God. Where you and I have been gifted and, and called to proclaim the message to the world so that they could find salvation and forgiveness in Christ. The kingdom of God started very small, just as Jesus described. But within 40 years of His death, the gospel had reached the greatest cultural centers of the Roman world. And it continues to this day making its way throughout the world. Remember, the mustard plant is an invasive species. This is what the kingdom does. It, it, it takes root somewhere and it chokes out all the other religions just like light expels darkness. The gospel has come to conquer the hearts of men, women, and children to such an extent that people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will find shelter under the branches of the kingdom of God. And the message of this kingdom that we preach is the message of grace and pardon for the vilest sinners. The message of the world is you can be righteous enough, do enough good, and God will accept you. This is the common theme of every religion. The message of the gospel comes in entirely different. It comes in and says, the king of love is on his throne. And he is, it is a throne of grace. The message of the Gospel is that there is pardon and forgiveness for the vilest offenders. And that message is so good and so pure and so true and so corresponding to reality that when it comes, it expels darkness and lies. And that is the message that you and I have been called to proclaim. It's the reason that you and I are still here, and we haven't been pulled up into heaven. We are here because God's kingdom is marching on. And there is a message that He has decreed that will be proclaimed, that will be the instrument by which His kingdom comes about. And the message is the Gospel. And His messengers are you and I. Our duty, our responsibility, is to be proclaiming the message of the Gospel To our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our family. In the United States and around the world. That's the call of our lives. That's the call of your life. And Jesus has promised, I'm going to be with you. Matthew 28. I'll be with you even to the end of the age. Now what age is he talking about there? Him saying, even to the end of the age, is to say, I will be with you until everyone for whom I have died bows the knee to me. Until that day, I will be with you to strengthen you, to undergird you, to fill you with courage for the task I have entrusted into your hands. And when the last soul has bowed, the knee to Christ. That will be the end of phase one. And then the Lord will descend and consummate His physical kingdom on earth. Just like the disciples and the Pharisees were expecting at the first advent. They they just didn't get that there would be a phase one and a phase two. We labor and we proclaim the truth now. And we do so until the Lord has redeemed the last soul. And then He will descend. And at that point is when we will see the kingdom of our Lord in all its glory, all its splendor, and all its wonder. And we will worship Him for eternity. But until then, we patiently labor on, understanding that often our work looks meager and our fruit is very difficult to see. But, because we know our God is sovereign and He has told us how the kingdom of God will come, slow, meager, it looks pitiful at first, but it's going to grow. Because of that, we keep our hands to the plow, trusting that the kingdom of God is coming exactly as He promised. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise You that You have arranged things in such a way that You receive maximum glory from the maximum amount of people that You have created. Father, You delight to redeem people like us. And we celebrate and we worship You for that. And Father, we pray that our fickle hearts will not be pulled away and discouraged by what seems so meager often in our own lives but that we remember You are sovereign and You delight to use weak, simple people like us to accomplish extraordinary things. Help us, Lord, to stand. Help us to fight discouragement. Help us to remember that Your kingdom is marching on and it is invincible. And You will get every soul You have redeemed. In Christ will receive the reward for his suffering. And for that day, we long and we say, even so, Lord, come quickly. Amen.